Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. What is up? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together, you and I, twice a week, we get to dive deep into the fascinating world of Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and all things decentralized. Again, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem, and I'm thrilled that you're joining me today on this whole new journey that we're taking the show. We're launching a whole new episode format today. We'll be inviting not one, not two, but three guests to join us in every single episode. We'll focus on one central theme, creating a much richer, more in-depth, challenging conversation. Today's theme is blockchain gaming, a very cool section of our industry that has shown incredible resilience and growth amidst the larger crypto market's highs and lows in the last year or two. Blockchain gaming has come a long way since the rise of games like Axie Infinity. The questions that we're asking today is how has this space evolved to remain relevant? That's the most important question and the overarching theme. We have three guests from three different areas of blockchain gaming today, each revolutionizing the gaming industry in their unique ways. They'll share their insights and predictions for the future of Bitcoin and blockchain gaming. Our first guest is an awesome guy named Inder Pull, the CEO and co-founder of Pixlinks, a gaming venture that's building a music metaverse with renowned musicians like Deadmau5 and everyone that you and I know. Next, we'll be joined by Simon Davis, co-founder and CEO of Mighty Bear Games, a studio that's breaking away from traditional gaming. They've been around a very long time and they're stepping boldly into Web3 game development. Really, really, really cool episode. And our final guest is Dan Nisanoff from The Game of Silks, a super cool game that's redefining the gaming industry by merging gambling, fantasy, horse racing, and digital tech into one exciting metaverse. It's NFT horses, breeding them. There's thousands of people doing it. Get ready for a thrilling exploration of blockchain gaming's present and future with some of the industry's most innovative minds. So sit back, tune in, and let's get started on this journey together. We have an amazing guest today, Inder Full. Inder, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. You are the CEO and co-founder of Pixelinks, a gaming venture that aims to build the music metaverse with musicians like Deadmau5. Is it Deadmau5 or Deadmau5? Deadmau5. Okay, I knew that, but everyone, people, it's like when you go, I go to the Cannes Film Festival, people will still say Cannes to me. And I'm like, no, I've been there. I've mm -hmm. asked a lot of French people. I've purposely said it wrong every which way to get corrected by French people on the right way. So I've done the experiment. It's Cannes. And you've worked across the music entertainment industry. You live in LA. You've been doing a lot of crazy things. You were selected as, as the International Music Summit Visionary Winner in 2016. You have a really cool company here where you're, you're building out the whole gaming world, but bringing together musicians to lead games and their fan bases. How did you get that idea? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've always been fascinated with the sort of intersection of different sectors. So whether it's music into gaming like or music into film, I think, you know, to me, that's where growth comes from. It's not just looking at an, a sector on its own, but, you know, trying to figure out this convergence. So the idea that gaming was going to present this new medium for artists, not only to express themselves, but also to connect with their fans and earn revenue seemed like a very natural evolution. And it was around this time that COVID, ha COVID happened and we yeah. suddenly saw 
all of our artists and friends livelihood basically sort of crumble and it showed this you know real strange sort of um reliance on touring and live events that the music industry has but the rest of the business model clearly doesn't work um so you know we got together with dead mouse richie horton uh, ben turner and dean wilson who are uh, both of the managers for for dead mouse and richie and you know we were talking about where we thought the future of the industry was going and I um, really believed that it's, it was going to be this convergence, you know, music into gaming, into Web3 was going to unlock some really incredible new revenue streams. So we went on to, you know, really start that journey, built up a, a world-class team of um, veterans from the gaming industry, companies like Sony, Disney, uh, even Marvel, yeah. um, to build out this product. And, and recently were acquired by Animoca Brands to help continue this journey of bringing music into, into games and giving artists a new medium to, to grow. That's so cool. Congratulations. Thank you. So when you were conceptualizing this, what did you think your first product or game was going to be? You must have been having to think about how you'd create revenue, you know, as you were building the company and putting the team together. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I'll actually go back to my first business that I started when I was 21. Um, I was still in university and I was working with um, a lot of brands. My, My first client was Lacoste and I would help these companies enter youth culture and essentially be this sort of voice and medium to help uh, a big brand come into you know a, a culture like music or skate skateboarding and and you know help them be relevant and within that process you know found you know building really fun experiences that would bring you know these cultures to life we very quickly went into building interactive installations and just larger than life experiences that would be you know on the one hand big experiences but would have interactivity kind of baked into them and i got more and more obsessed with this idea of gamification like how you could use the idea of points and leaderboards to incentivize people and to create some purpose and meaning and um you know that so that idea was definitely sort of in the background for quite a while um and then you know it's just a gradual process i think of first looking at virtual concerts actually i'll take a step back my first idea was to create an interactive music festival that's where right. it all started that's cool um, yeah it was the idea was we'll take a festival bring game elements into it and find a way for people to not only listen to music but have this sort of gamified experience laser tag and and things like that and that basically just evolved into getting more and more digitally immersed and and really thinking of just you know pure digital experiences uh, and we're now sort of at the intersection. We have uh, a mobile game, which is a mobile AR game. Um, it's built on the Niantic Lightship technology, which is the same technology behind Pokemon Go. Um, so that was the first step. It was you can basically explore the world around you in this mobile app and start collecting music NFTs in a really simple, fun way. And we got some incredible results. We saw people collecting 30,000, 40,000 digital collectibles wow. a month. So you know, the medium was interesting, but we then just continued to refine and think about how's the business model in this really going to evolve and, and what will that look like? And we can touch on, on some of those pieces as, as we go. I can see like from a user perspective, it's awesome. You go and you're following your, you're a super fan, right? So you've been following like the, to- the whole Taylor Swift craze with, with all the concerts around the country and, and the world, right? My wife just went with a bunch of her girlfriends to the Taylor Swift. It's like they're Swifties. It's a whole culture, right? And and so you, you're, you're capturing that super fan and you're giving them more to do. And it's like you're working with the artist to, to create these, these experiences and, and working with augmented reality. That's Pokemon Go really captured, you know, our hearts with, with augmented reality. I was even out there. I remember a couple of years ago in the parks trying, because it wasn't even about collecting the Pokemon. It was just about the experience. Right. 
Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's what's been missing from the music industry is artists don't really have these channels to really kind of build up oh. their IP much further than the conventional, you know, ideas of like release a song on Spotify or release a music video. So our question was, how can we give artists this medium to start building new IP and new ways for them to tell stories and bring fans closer into their vision? And I think in there, there's a sweet spot where fans will be willing to pay, will be willing to, you know, go further than they would typically do because they want to get closer to the artist's story and, and message. Um, so that was always the, the aim is like, how could we bring artists and fans closer together and find this new space where, um, you know, artists have uh, new touch points to build IP and, and create new revenue streams. So let's just say you, you come across a piece of content or IP or an artist or something, and you're tasked with essentially figuring out how to access the perfect audience for that. Like, where, do you, where do you start? You talk about Lacoste and the youth. I remember that. I remember how, as a kid, Lacoste became so deeply ingrained in the culture growing up, and I never understood how that happened. So now I'm talking to the guy. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So our, our, the first thing is art over ads. That's the first principle, right? If you're a brand, you have to have a message that is supporting art and culture. And if it's all about your advertising, it's never going to resonate. Um, and the second principle that we used to push and still do is, you know, you think about whether you're a brand or a company, like in many ways, you're building a movement, I think. You know, you, you have your products, which is what people buy, but Ultimately, people buy into the purpose and the vision of the, of the company and, and what it represents. So, you know, for us, it was always, what do you stand for? Like, what is the movement you're trying to create here, you know, to get people to truly believe in your, your brand or your product? And, and that goes bigger, it goes further than the product, right? That goes into yeah. elements of, like we said, you know, how do you support culture? How do you give back to communities? And it's interesting, those ideas now being more relevant than they've ever been as we start to sort of look at how the landscape of the web is changing and, and expectations are changing, right? Communities want to be, um, you know, more incentivized and, and have a bigger stake in yeah, I agree. how product evolves. So I guess the next question is an actual, and, and there's no there's no right answer yet because you're, you're trailblazing a new, a whole new, not, you can call it an industry, but that's a more of a mature word. It's a, it's a whole new ecosystem here. So you're, you're trailblazing this and, and you have folks who are, who are out there, they're, they're collecting, I mean, I think the term NFT may may eventually change uh, into like how like the token ICO or whatever, but maybe, but they're collecting these uh, these smart tokens, if you will, that that involve art, but they're also like more of a an attachment, right? A, a, a relationship mapping between the artist and the super fan. Now you've mapped this like you can't. I don't know if the users, if you're not watching it, might the YouTube. You don't know. I'm like showing my hands connecting, but you've mapped like this this relationship, right? So now I guess the question is, then what? How, what's the next step? What do, you, what do you do with that relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the first steps, so the way we see our sort of core uh, gameplay loop, if you were to call it such, um, the first step is collect. So we think all fans start with this idea of just wanting to collect music and be part of the, that experience. So our core game starts with just this foundation of collection. The next step is creation. So you've collected these items you can now use a whole range of creation tools to start remixing these assets. And what makes it really fun is for the first time, fans are able to take content that they found from an artist like Deadmau5, remix it, and even commercialize it and take it much further. So the first step is you can collect some content, collect these digital assets, which could be music, it could be 3D files. And from there, we have a number of different quests and challenges where fans can start to create new outputs. 
And the great thing there is for the artist, when fans create, it leads to more content. Uh, we did a, we did a project um, last year with Dead Mouse where uh, we got six thousand fans to help make his music video. And you can see the music video on online. It's called When the Summer Dies. Six thousand fans made a video that has one point five million views. And if you watch it, it looks like it's a triple A video. It was made in a game engine. Uh, could have cost over five hundred grand to create. And it was really this next step. It's like we, you know, fans first, they've proven they want to collect. They want to be part of this experience of just collecting and owning the music. And then we pushed it one step further. Do they also want to create? And, you know, we saw some great results where just a handful of fans can create so much value for an artist. Um, so how did that, I'm reading about this now. How, how did that work? Like, how did they contribute mm-hmm. to that? Because that's a great case study. Yeah, thank you. So the way it worked is we started off with a PFP uh, drop with Dead Mouse called Heads. Uh, from there, if you bought one of these, you would also get access to a bunch of 3D assets that you could play with. And the first quest was hosted in a, a platform called Manticore. Uh, so you could take these 3D assets and build scenes and worlds in the Manticore ecosystem. Um, and then from there, we would bring them back out and, and pretty much work with the community to, to chop that up into a video. It was really one of our first projects that inspired us to think about this relationship between artists and fans and how much value could actually be created within just a small handful of, of fans you know, when, they, when they get incentivized yeah. and are given the tools. It's so cool. And uh, friction is freedom, right? You get the, the more, the more we talk, talk about this a little bit, it sounds like what friction would you like to see removed? Do you think that more people would even engage with this a lot more? Like, because people have to go on different platforms and access wallets and tokens. And it's like kind of a, a complicated thing. I, I've been in Bitcoin my whole adult life. And I guess there are 11 year olds and 12 year olds who have been born now without Bitcoin ever not existing and, and to some extent crypto now too. So, so I guess over time that's going to go away. But for now, there's probably a lot of friction that you still have to deal with. And it must be hard to sell new artists and partners sometimes because they, feel they, may, they may feel the same. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, we, we, this is a, a problem that we have to, bat, you know, chat, I guess, uh, tackle together as an industry, right? We, we understand that there are, you know, challenges around how viewers, our users, first of all, just experience, you know, the products that are being built in this space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sure. we need to yeah. make the user experiences better. I think the language needs to change, as you've already discussed, right? NFTs have a certain stigma attached to them. And, you know, we, we have to be thoughtful about how do we bridge between, you know, Web 2 and Web 3 without creating jargon and too many layers that just kind of, like you said, add friction and add complexity to, to the experience. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, it all just goes back down to the value proposition. And I think yeah. everyone in the industry is, is going back to just reassessing, like and making sure that the value proposition is clear and we're not getting lost with leading with technology ultimately. And, and you know, what, what does this mean for users? It's very, very interesting. I mean, I wonder what you could do in order to, you can like merge a wallet and a platform into one. I like AR and not full VR because you're not worried about, you know, hardware or headgear. Mm-hmm. And then people can just use their phones. Music festivals, people are already used to using, you know, NFTs with tickets. But what mm-hmm. do you call the NFTs? Like smart tokens? Like you, you mm-hmm. must you know, think at times like a toy with the term like NFT and say, ah, oh, I wonder if there was a better th- something we can use. 
Yeah, no, it's a really great, great point. So we have thought about this and, you know, we are thinking about language, but we've actually moved on to start thinking about visual iconography more. And if you can start to think about how people connect the dots between like, let's say Lego bricks, right? People look at at Legos and go, I get this. I can put these together or a console and a cartridge, right? Vinyl and and a vinyl player. There's this clear connection between this item that you want to collect and there's many and then the player that you put it in. So I think we're, you know, we're experimenting with a few things. One is definitely just visual iconography and how can we start getting people understanding these NFTs as not just like JPEGs, but these digital objects that you can take and put in places. And it kind of, you know, it's, it's really kind of giving physical form to these digital assets where, you know, you need to envision them as more than just, a, a, you know, a JPEG, right? It's like, we know that yeah. between us, there's so much more functionality packed into a smart contract, but we're not going to describe a smart contract to a user. But we can describe a cartridge that stores information and can be used in many different ways in a very simpler format. So, you know, we're experimenting with a few things and just seeing what resonates. But, you know, this is it's, it does require a holistic viewpoint always. Right. It's not it's like the user experience, the language, the visual iconography, the industry at large. Um, you know, there, there's so many pieces, I think, to get this kind of moving to a point where we, we can get, you know, saturation at a mass market level, I oh think, for sure. Are you going to be at the Cannes Film Festival? I won't, but um, I've never been actually. Is it good? It's amazing. I, if there, if I could only travel once a year, this would be the trip I go. It's the best experience that of our lives. It's just, it's like combines the film industry, the music industry into just like, it's like it, give, it validates all the hard work that we put into putting together our content from podcasting to I make films too. And my wife's an actor. So between all that, it comes, brings it all together. There's a huge crypto presence. I mean, and it's France. And you're wearing a tuxedo the whole time. You can't not be in a tuxedo. So it's great. Yeah, no, that, that sounds great. You, you feel like a million bucks, I'm assuming, the whole week. <laughs> yeah, and the food's yeah. so good. But hey, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on, on the growth of your company and, and Amico Brands and the acquisition. And thank you for representing our industry in a positive way with real utility, you know? Now I can actually, I'm going to point to you and your company to a lot of people when they kind of want real, real world utility right now on, on, on how NFTs work. Gosh, I can't, I hate using that term NFTs, but I don't, I don't know what else I can use. But thank you again, Ender, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. And I appreciate you, you having, uh, making the time for me. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in... 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges, that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are gonna love them. We have them in the show notes. 
check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. We're on this awesome theme of blockchain gaming. We've been talking to some amazing people today. I'm excited to have Simon Davis, of Mighty CEO of Mighty Bear Games. You guys are going to love it. Go check their website out. They have some of the best games out there. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to, to finally you know, get a chance to, to be on here after listening for so long. Thanks, man. You're an 18-year veteran of the gaming industry. You held management and you, you led product at gaming studios like King, Ubisoft, Big Point, Empire Interactive, Laughing Jackal. You were Develop Magazine's Under 30 recipient. And in 2017, you got together with your friends and you launched Mighty Bear Games. And from the outset, it seemed like you guys have been growing, building out some, some amazing products. Uh, one of my new favorites, Butter Royale, the Disney Melee Mania, which is really cool because you're, it seems like you're licensing with some major, major content and IP companies. You have a bunch of other games and you guys are like this awesome studio. But at some point in, in the past, I don't know when this happened, you fell down the rabbit hole and you decided to sunset your Web 2 titles and shift focus completely to Web 3 game development. What happened there? Yeah, it was a very interesting journey for us and it wasn't one that we'd really planned. So on a personal note, I got into crypto, I want to say around 2015. I was playing a bit with Bitcoin and a bit later I got into Ethereum. And in 2021, um, I started playing around with NFTs and really looking very closely at what was happening in the Web 3 gaming space. And Mighty Bear, uh, as you may have mentioned, is based out of Singapore. And so we're right in the heart of Southeast Asia. And so we had a front kind of front row view of everything that was happening with Axie Infinity and the initial wave of, uh, or the, I guess you'd call it the second wave, actually, of Web3 yeah. games and it, like the whole kind of play-to-earn boom. And obviously those games were not really sustainable, but they were a proof of concept. And so it was almost like a Farmville moment. So Farmville kind of for a lot of people really validated free-to-play as a business model. And, and for me, like as someone's been in the industry a long time, it was very clear to me that this was the beginning of like a major business uh, model transition. Um, one of the things I've seen over the, you know, the decades I've been in gaming is that those studios that are there very early and kind of managed to capitalize on these big platform shifts tend to have an outsized influence. And you know, it was a big opportunity for us as a small but nimble player to really kind of get in early and, and make an impact and kind of make a dent in the universe as far as gaming is concerned. You guys are one of the few studios that have actually figured out how to like make a business model of the human psyche, right? Because gaming, first of all, gaming when we were younger was completely treated differently. Now gaming is proven to make memory a lot better problem-solving skills. I was a gamer, and here I yep. am today. You are a gamer. Here you are today. Most of us played video games in some, in, in some instances that actually helps with, so, with, with, with being social. As a kid, the only friend groups I had were my Xbox LAN parties and stuff like that. Like, we weren't, you know, hanging around uh, the back alley playing football or whatever. I was not really a sports guy. So these were our social communities. Uh, eventually led me into Bitcoin, too. But figuring that out is really hard. Like how to create the perfect game. That's like, you almost have to be born. It's almost like game makers, like Nintendo. You're almost like you guys are seen as this like uh, extra, extraordinary. You're not of the human race. You guys have developed some sort of like capacity to develop these, these brilliant and genius things. So like the business model of games has always been clear. It's you buy, you, you buy a game or there's advertising. And so it's like a player of games I would never worry about the 
integrity of the creativity being lost because there's no business model in the game itself. Eventually, you started to get that with like in-app purchases and things like that. But for yeah. me, I, my, my gaming days ended around the invention of in-app purchases just because I felt that requiring money inside of games to beat the games was just kind of the antithesis of why gaming was invented. So now you're not doing that. You're still having regular games, but there's like a, a crypto component to it. How, how do you figure all this out? It's a complex problem. I mean, you alluded to it very cleverly. So you have the, you know, we, I used to make free-to-play games. And so one of the core tenets of in-app purchase-driven games is that the user should be able to complete the game and should be able to see everything in the game without spending. But you have a, an equation where some players will have more money than time and vice versa. And so the players that have, say, be, sorry, maybe more money than time, but maybe we're willing to speed up or get access to try different kind of tactical options. I think that's okay, yeah. so long as it's not an unfair advantage. Um, now, in Web3, like, it becomes more complex, right? Because, you know, what we call internally the three-body problem. You have the developer, you have the players, and then you have speculators at the other yeah. end. And it's like, how do you balance them together? And I think some developers have been quite, either they've leaned too much into the speculators, and so you get, like, play to earn, and it's not sustainable, yeah. or they kind of lean too much into the the core player base and they don't acknowledge the speculators are just part of the reality. And so then the assets don't have any value and it's hard to scale the game. I think as a developer, we've thought very carefully about creating a very rich and rewarding gameplay experience, but also gamifying the ownership of the assets as much as possible so that people feel rewarded for just holding on to them and being a part of the community and being active. So that's that's kind of the, the balance we're trying to strike right so now. So you, on your, on, I forget which game, one of your earlier games, you guys actually, Mighty Action Heroes, you guys gave away the NFTs in the drop. You didn't sell them. What was the thinking behind that? What, did, what was your future? Was your thought process exactly that, that you're going to build the value from zero? And you almost like won't have speculators in the beginning because why would someone speculate on something you gave away for free? If something you give away for free, people will yeah, speculate because uh, they'll try and get the perceived value. So we came up with a Genesis Pass for an ecosystem of Web3 games we're building. We call it the Mighty Net, and Mighty Action Heroes is the first game in the Mighty Net. And so with the Mighty Net Genesis drop, we released one 337 NFTs. You can probably see what we did oh, yeah, there. Elite. And we handpicked, yeah, <laughs> we handpicked everyone we wanted to be a part of the community. It was no like, there was no open mint. It was invite only. And so we picked our favorite builders and contributors and other people in the space, and we invited them to come and mint. And so we wanted to seed the initial community with some of the, some of the smartest and, and coolest people we know. And so I think that got us off to a very good start and created kind of a bit of hype around the project. And then over time, we're expanding the game. We're letting people come in and play for free without owning any assets. And there's a small collection that we released called the Big Bear Syndicate, and that was priced, I think, only like 16 bucks. It's like very accessible to people. We don't want to sell NFTs for thousands yeah. of dollars right out of the gate. It's not, not good business. And I think just by gradually having a very grassroots kind of ground up uh, ecosystem, you get, you know, uh, maybe a thousand or 10,000 true believers. And then over the time, you can expand that. But I think trying to, you know, go for high price mints early on and create like fake scarcity yeah. and lean into FOMO is just not very healthy. And you don't get the best community. And if you want to have a game that runs for 5, 10, 20 years, like World of Warcraft's been running for about 20 years now, right? You need to have a strong community. You can't just chase like, short-term gains and then burn your players. And so we've always been community first. Oh, so, so there's a difference. There's a difference between short-term games and long-term games. I never really thought about that. Is that like, how do you define that? Is it, is it like 
a game that someone just picks up and plays quick and then leaves and moves on from? Or yeah, so like you have like live service titles like RuneScape is another great example. Everyone that's in Web three seems to have played RuneScape at some point. And like RuneScape's been running since the early two thousands. You have these games that have built like a solid community, really understand their fans, continually build content that you know caters to their needs as well and keeps people engaged. And then you have games which maybe you'll play for like 10 minutes or you might play for a week or two and then forget about because there's not much substance there. It's almost like a, like a sugary snack, right? Gives you a short high, but then after that, like there's, there's nothing else to it. Do you think that the integration between like AR, gaming, crypto is going to come from like a new gaming studio or like more of an established one or like an established brand? Like, will the, will the watershed moment be if like Grand Theft Auto has some in-game mechanism when they come out with GTA 6? It's a good question. I think that historically, legacy studios and big players don't innovate. Um, they're very good at like mastery oh, and delivering a very high execution and polished product. But if you think of like the transition to mobile, so Supercell, the maker of Clash of Clans, was like a you know, small studio in Finland. King that made Candy Crush was a small Swedish studio. A Zinger that made like Farmville based out of the US was a small riot was an independent studio that you know they went on to make League of Legends, but it was based off a of Warcraft mod. Like these big watershed moments very rarely come from big studios. The only exception I can really think of was Fortnite, which came from Epic, which was a big studio. But even then that was based off something else that another studio had done, right? It was based off of PUBG and actually they took that and polished it. And so no, I think these kind of big breakout kind of new moments will, will always come from kind of the smaller players. You still looking at at crypto is like uh a business model or is it more of like a complementary revenue stream for you guys or for for the users like how else do you make money in gaming yeah so i mean in our case the game will have a mixture of in-app purchases on mobile so if you don't want to connect to your wallet and you don't want to own any of those nft assets you can opt out but you won't have the full experience like but some of the coolest stuff in the game is kind of on chain and so that would require you to have a wallet even if you're not buying nfts just for like authentication and signing in and whatever but we want to have a way that we can onboard what we call the crypto curious. And so maybe players will start playing the game and they'll play as a normal Web2 player. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you've got some new item in your vault. The player will connect to their vault. The vault's actually your wallet. And so we're finding ways to kind of remove all, and abstract all that complexity and just get players to start playing with the stuff and see what the benefits are without them having to like, you know, set up a seed phrase and, uh, and kind of understand all the complexities of kind of having a, a crypto wallet. It's the best solution. We had a guest here and she uh, leads up the creative labs over at Fox Corporation. And she said the best quote to me, she said, friction is freedom. So it's like, don't change your current model. Like, you know, you guys still have the Web2 experience, like for my, you know, for, for, for people around here that I know that aren't, you know, really into crypto or whatever. But you create this like complimentary add-on experience because who's not crypto yeah. curious, right? Everyone is. And if you make the friction small enough, then all of a sudden people get that freedom. It's like, it's such a freeing moment when you connect your wallet to a game and you start earning an asset that you actually can own on your own, not within the game anymore. And it's like your identity now and there's connections to other things. It's like a very freeing moment. It's like the first time you slice bread. It's a very unique experience, right? And that's kind of what we're banking on. So I experienced it in 2021. I mean, I started trying out some of the first NFT-enabled games and it made perfect sense to me. And as someone that's been building virtual worlds now for 
close to 20 years, I'm pretty bullish that, you know, when traditional players start to see, you know, number go up or like the assets to have real assets that they can yeah. hold and trade, like that will become hugely engaging. What are you, what are you building on? Like what blockchains protocols, is it all yourself? How do you decide that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for us, like we prioritized composability and ecosystem as much as possible and also just being able to leverage as much existing tooling as we can. And so we went for an EVM compatible choice. So, you know, today the game is being built on Polygon because of its kind of lower fees and faster transaction fees than mainnet. You know, mainnet's pretty yeah. expensive these days. But, you know, we'll see. Like for us, just the focus is on being EVM compatible and having like a good onboarding for our players. So the it seems like almost all blockchains now are launching with like EVM compatibility. It's very important to be able to run your own kind of smart contracts on your own, you know, siloed without needing to have human interaction there. And then be able to be, I guess, like blockchain agnostic in a way. A lot of these blockchains, yeah. you almost don't even even need to tell your customer what chain they're they're using, right? Do you have any content there that says Polygon, Ethereum or whatever? Not right now. Um, and to your point, like, I'm not the first person to make this observation, but, you know, when you're using a website, you don't care if it's being delivered by Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services or like a CDN like Akamai or anything like that. You just want it to work. And so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't worry too much about the branding between the different chains. I just want our players to have the best experience. Yeah, but you've been uh, in the crypto space for a long time now. Where do you think that's going to go? Like as a software, putting your software hat on, do you ever ask yourself, like, why are there multiple chains even at all? It's funny because there probably won't be as many in the future. You'll see like a coming back, you know, like yeah. chains split and then they kind of all come back together in a way. Yeah, I mean, you make an interesting observation, right? So Immutable has some really interesting ZK technology and they just deployed it on Polygon. And previously that would have been unthinkable. You know, they were fierce competitors yeah. and now they're kind of collaborating. And I think, I don't know if you'll see fewer chains in the future, but you'll definitely see more collaboration and cross-pollination between different ecosystems. I mean, to your point why there are so many chains, I think it's a valid question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can guess why there are good business reasons yeah. why some people might want to launch a chain and raise money. But like as an end user, I think we probably have more chains than we need given the size of the ecosystem today. Do you see yourself ever um, launching a game that's kind of created by your community of, of holders? That's the dream, right? You give them the assets and you open source as much of the technology and the tooling and you say, hey guys, you generate your own content because, I mean, Roblox is a great example of that, right? You give players a framework and you let them go off and they create all kinds of weird and wonderful experiences. Maybe maybe something like the other side can be the first time that we see that in Web3 as well, right? They're providing that kind of open experience as well. And then they can take it out of that experience and like you'll see. Yeah. I wonder how this will play out because you have like markets that are attached to this in a way. So you'll see people like having their real jobs in these games. Yeah. I mean, that already happens in MMOs. So I, I remember even as, as late as like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, they had people in Second Life who were making yeah. a living as like wedding planners for virtual worlds and kinds of mad stuff, like an architect. Oh my god! Stuff like that. Yeah, I remember. I remember first time ever. I remember meeting the CEO of Second Life, the creator um, Philip Rosedale, for the first time back when I got involved in Bitcoin early on. This was maybe like 2013 or 2014 when I met him. I was just completely in awe because 
here you had someone who like pioneered the the second life whole world and he's getting into Bitcoin himself too and actually invested in a bunch of early Bitcoin companies himself. I mean, it makes perfect sense though, right? He's seen the power of true communities and handing control over to your users. And so that someone like that would get sec- would get Bitcoin yeah. is, is perfectly logical. Talk to me about AI. Is it too early to talk about it? Will there be something playing into this? Will it be like a marriage between AI and crypto? Are you thinking about it? Yeah, I, she just wrote a, a fairly lengthy Twitter thread about this. So we use AI as part of our game development tooling already. So one of the goals I set to the studio managers in December, so the, the end of last year, was that by the end of this year, 50% of our output should be AI generated. And we're already on track to exceed that. So we have things like we have integrated ChatGPT into the animation pipeline so animators can generate Python scripts. And so they can generate scripts to optimize their work without involving an engineer. So it's already like saving dozens of engineering hours every week. Um, on the art side, we can now produce quick sketches and we've trained a model on our own internal 3D assets and it will generate 3D assets based on those sketches in our own style. But that's just two examples, but we're using it across the board actually. Is it your own GPT that's like an open source one that you've closed off? Like how, how do you maintain that data? That's your ownership that you've trained because can't, isn't GPT open for all? Uh, GPT is specifically, but there are other tools, especially on the art side, where you can kind of create your own data sets and you can train it on your own data. But GPT, yeah, like anything you generate will be public, but the queries are pretty broad. It's like, you know, generate me a script that will do this, this, and this on a kind of uh, a model that looks like this. So they're not too specific. So we're not too worried about that. All those computer science classes in high school just, Python just go out the window. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Never, yeah, Python, you can basically generate instantly now. I was only ever good enough at writing those like simple scripts, you know, but you take the classes so you can be able to have a conversation with your CTO without seeming like an idiot. But yeah, but sometimes they throw me a bone. They say, hey, Charlie, write this for us or whatever. So I feel like I'm part of it, but I guess no more. <laughs> but Simon, think. Well, I mean, it's, Feel good to to know what yeah, you're reading, right? And not just take it at face value. That's a that's yeah. a great lesson. And I would love to leave off the listeners with that. A lot of people tell me, well, I'll, I'll never be a good programmer, coder, developer. So what's the point? Honestly, I like I'm I'm the worst developer because of my ADHD and my like inability my syntax. I always screw up my syntax somewhere and and um and whatever. But the ability to read code, that is it's like speaking another language. There's no, yeah. there's nothing better. Go learn another code, but like focus, of course, on learning how to write it. But don't be dismayed if you're not very good at that. Under being able to look at a couple of lines of code, or being able to understand like just the general idea of like what's going on and why this exists, will come in handy so many times in life. All right, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. See you later. I'm excited to have my guest today, Dan Nisanoff. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Charlie. So we're on this like theme here. We're talking about blockchain gaming. We're talking about how blockchain gaming has not only been one of the sectors of, of crypto that has not only just like had its own segment away from all like the FTX drama that happened last year and all the stuff that's still happening, but it 
it grew and it's been the shining city on the hill where people are pointing to kind of the next wave of where things are going to be built and where engineers are going to be going and where the money's going to be. And so I'm excited to talk to you today. You have this really cool company called The Game of Silks. And I was like completely blown away. I have a blowing in my mind question I want to ask you. But um, to give the listeners a little, little bit of background, first derivative play-to-play, play-to-earn metaverse that mirrors the real world of thoroughbred horse racing. The Silks metaverse is powered by the play-to-earn economy where participants can own, trade, and interact with a variety of in-game NFTs, earn rewards through skilled gameplay, and experience the thrill of thoroughbred horse ownership. I mean, you guys got deep into so many different ways to create these horses and breed them and different factors and metrics and things like that. And you guys launched in June of 2021 and your top 15 all-time sports NFT project on the Ethereum blockchain on OpenSea. And since then, you guys have done like some crazy partnerships. You have a, a partnership with the New York Racing Association and you're working with Fox Sports to like stream races in the Silks metaverse. I mean, it's totally, there's so many different sectors of crypto that you guys are touching here. It's not just like gaming. It's not just horse racing. It's, it's, it's everything. I guess the question is at some point when you start a startup and you're with your friends and you have an idea and you guys are talking about something cool and you start going through that process and you do slacks and you do Zoom meetings. And at some point, the idea, you have to like make a, a decision in yourself. Like, should I do this? Is this what I'm going to stake my career on? Like, will this work? You start to imagine like, how am I going to actually make money from this? Me with all my time spent. You must have hit that like brick wall when, when you're, this is not the lowest hanging fruit, right? Like, did you, did you have those self-reflecting moments and want to quit at some point? Like, how did you get to where you are today? You know, I'm a <clears throat> serial technology entrepreneur. So I tend to be attracted to cutting edge technologies, being first to market with very innovative concepts. Uh, and I've done it. This is my fifth startup. So uh, I'm used to the volatility um, surrounding these environments. Uh, I was there in the 90s when the internet came out of the ground. I was there in 2000 when the internet um, imploded and the bubble burst. I had uh, uh, my second, this is my second Web3 company. My first one, the Crown League, um, which was a fantasy football platform that was ultimately sold to the uh, NFL Hall of Fame spec. Uh, we were there when crypto came out of the ground and we were there when uh, the crypto winter came in and uh, um, and everything was shut down. So I've, I've lived it. And um uh, we're super excited about this project. It's one of the most successful launches of a company I've ever started. Um, it is a true use case for Web3 gaming. Gaming is one is always one of the early uh, on-ramps for consumers. Uh, so when you look at Web1 and Web2, you saw fantasy football come to the market, right? FanDuel and DraftKings um, spun up a product that took fantasy football out of the home and really made it accessible to hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, in 2001, you saw poker stars with poker. Uh, one of the first adoptions of true internet commerce you know, was, was poker. And they took it from a game that was played in smoky casinos by old men and turned it into a glamorous sport that's played by hundreds of millions of people around the world today with real fandom. Uh, and we're doing the same thing for horse racing. Yeah, that's a good point. Poker growing up was this 
the perception of poker completely changed. I grew up thinking poker was all about gambling and there was no skill or there was no, you know, you don't gain any like mental resources, if you will, like you don't grow from it. But then a couple of years ago, I started playing poker, not in in any serious sense, but enough to to understand the game and, and things like that. And it completely changed everything in the way I thought about poker. And it's because poker became more glamorous. It actually had a charitable poker tournament. I was like, wow, this is an amazing game. It actually made me excited about math again. So you're doing, you want to do for, for horse racing kind of the same thing. Yeah, horse racing uh, a long time ago, maybe 50 years ago, was probably the most glamorous spectator sport in this country. And it's declined over the years because betting has been very accessible online. It was one of the first sports that you could legally bet on across the country. Uh, well before traditional sports betting. Uh, and so people stopped going to the tracks and people stopped engaging in the in the game as yeah. intimately. And so a lot of the luster was lost. We're bringing it back because we're creating fandom in individual horses. Like if you were to, uh-huh. if, if you were to ask the average person, name an active thoroughbred racehorse today, most people wouldn't be able to. Uh, but they would be able to rattle off the names of every football player in the NFL, every baseball player in Major League Baseball, et cetera. And, uh, we're bringing that back. Our game uh, is a very unique genre of of fantasy gaming that has never existed before. Um, we take, you know, the world of thir- the world of thoroughbred horse racing is fascinating. In the U.S., there are twenty thousand horses that are born each year that are registered to race, so they get licensed to race when they're born. At two years old, they're allowed to race. They can race from two to ten years old. They're the rookie class that enters the game each year. And there's over a billion dollars at stake in 30,000 races every year with the prizes going to the owners of the winning horses. We tokenize every horse that's born in the world, in the United States, and eventually in the world. And we sell them to the public in an unrevealed state. So everybody gets an even chance at getting a great horse. Uh, And then once you get that horse, it's a digital clone. It's a digital twin of the real horse. And whatever happens in the real world happens in our world which means that if your horse goes out and wins a race, and let's say wins $100,000, you get paid what our economy is set to. This year, it's 1%. Hmm. So you buy a horse, and it races in the real world and wins. You own a derivative asset of that horse, and you get paid in the same way. You can fractionalize the horse. You can syndicate the horse. So you can share ownership with your friends, with your family, with the public. You can pool horses together on a farm and temporarily share in the ownership. You can develop businesses within our game that simulate real businesses in the real world of horse racing. It's basically the same thing. And the only difference is it's more accessible because our horses are, you know, 1% of the real world horse. The cost of a horse in the real world is about $100,000 to buy a decent horse as a one-year-old. And then fifty thousand dollars a year to maintain it. So it's not an it's it's a it's a very expensive sport, um, and we're making it accessible to the masses. Yeah, and because it's it's such an expensive sport too, for even the people that do get into it, they almost kind of know it's like more of like a culture thing. It's a lost leader. They're lucky if they break even. They just want to have their horses compete so they can bring their friends. It's not really like a business unless you really know it or are born into like some family. My friend who's from who I live here in Florida with one of my closest friends, he he jokes and tells me all the time. He's like, the only thing good about me when I owned those horses was that my uh, son became like an amazing, not a horse rider, but like he races horses or whatever. Andy, 
and things like that. But he's joking. But of course, it gives you a lot of love and pleasure. But I guess because there's still so much ambiguity, it's not horse racing has not come into the digital age yet. And if you can do to this what poker online poker did to poker, and not only change the image, but when it changed the image, it created more favorable regulations around the industry around the world. And it created a more glamorous sport. It lost the shadiness, the scamminess, the money launderingness, the all this, all the the, the bad shit that ha- comes with like unregulated gambling and stuff like that. It's still there, but it's been brought above board. So you could probably argue that you're doing the work of like bringing more people aware to to the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the one a really good analog is if you look at if you look at professional football. You know, you start following players today as early as high school, and then you watch them in college. And then by the time they get to the NFL, you already know who they are, and they already have a fan base. In horse racing, an average horse races six times a year and starts about 25 times in their lives. When you go to the races and you bet on a horse, for a fleeting moment, you'll bet on that horse and be its fan for two minutes, right? You pick the horse because you like the name, you like the number, you like the colors. Whatever the reason is. And I can tell you that most people that bet on horses do it because they like the action, but they forget about the athlete as soon as they're done with the race. In our game, because you own the horse, you're now looking at the game from a lens of an owner, not the lens of a spectator. You're now developing an affinity and following that horse as it's growing. We sell our horses at one year old. They still need a year to train and work out to get ready to race. So you're with that horse the whole time, learning its bloodline, following its relatives, its half-siblings as they race, developing an affinity for the horse, and becoming a fan. And by creating thousands, if not tens of thousands of fans around an otherwise unknown athlete is what's going to create fandom in the game. Okay, so now I I can visualize the whole Web 2 experience of this and see like all the AI that you've built and stuff like that. We're not there from like a hardware perspective with VR or even like AR, you know, where like the Pokemon Go style, it's still all experimental stuff. What do you offer now in terms of like an actual experience? Because there is an experience that comes with going to the track and with your friends and you're seeing the horses race. And and so there is that experience. What type of experience that you offer now? And And of course, in the full awareness that you're a pioneer. So you're building as that technology is developing and coming to market. So what would you like to see, like in a perfect world, five, 10 years from now, like what hardware or what non-hardware type of hardware would be, would you, would you like to see? So we're blending the real world with the virtual world. And in our game, um, the experiences that you're talking about is one, you get to actually, you know, see a virtual version of your horse that you get to manage that lives on your farm that you can actually track. When that horse races, we're building out all the racetracks in the world in our metaverse. And we're simulcasting the races with your digital assets. So for example, right now we have a partnership with uh, Naira, the New York Racing Association. They're the largest horse racing company in the country. They own Belmont, the third prong on the Triple Crown. They own Saratoga, arguably the nicest and most glamorous track in the country. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And and Aqueduct in New York City. If your horse is racing on one of those tracks, we're going to be broadcasting that race in real time in our metaverse. And it'll literally, your NFT will run around that track 
in a synchronized manner to the real horse when he's running in real time. You'll be able to visit our metaverse and any horse going, any race going on in the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, will be occurring in our game. So that's bringing the real world to the virtual world. On the other, in the other direction, oh. you have a horse that's racing on one of these tracks. The, these tracks want to get you to their location. And so we're cutting deals where our owners of our horses, of our virtual horses, will be invited to the tracks, given premium seating so that they can experience watching their horse race and other really special um, things that I can't talk about yet. But No, but that's so cool. It's like what fantasy football should have been like. The problem with fantasy football is you have too few players. So you only have a few hundred relevant players in fantasy football. And so the problem becomes... You, in order for that game to reach the masses, you have hundreds of thousands of people owning the same players and competing with each other. In our game, there's only one horse. And you can fractionalize it and share the ownership with other people. But you have a class of 20,000 rookies a year. There's a lot of horses. Okay. And globally, when we go global, you're talking about 100,000 horses a year, right? That could be owned fractionally by a million people. Are you getting, is there a relationship? Is it more of like, where you're, whatever the horse is doing in the real world, it's mm-hmm. emulating in your fantasy world? Or is there a relationship between the horse and then the fractionalized owner on the NFT? Like, what's that relationship like? Sure. So, so we're a pure derivative asset. So think of uh, an, a stock option of Apple and Apple Corporation, right? They're two very different things and they're unrelated to each other. The Apple stock option, the call or an index option tracking another stock is literally moving up and down based on the momentum of the underlying asset it's tracking. In our game, the assets are a mirror image of the real asset, but they have no privity with the real asset, meaning that we don't have a relationship with the owner uh, today, partly because the movement of horse ownership is so fast that you can own the horse for one minute and then somebody buys it from you, and then somebody buys it from that person. That's where horse trading comes from. Um, it's a very, very dynamic market. So it's hard to track the real owner at any given point in time. We rely on um, mature fantasy laws and sports data laws that allow us to use this data um, as long as we don't use the likeness of the real horse or the, the logo of the owner of the real horse's stables. We don't have to have a relationship with the but the owner. That's how fantasy sports started. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you didn't like the early fantasy sports days, uh, there was no licensing until they decided they wanted to incorporate the likenesses of the players. That's a really smart way of, of doing it. And how many players do you have right now? So we have 25,000 people in our Discord community. It's a very active Discord. Wow. Um, and then we have about 3,000 people that pre-purchased in-game assets to play the game. There's been over almost $6 million of activity in the last 12 months of direct purchases and about $5 million in secondary market activity. So it's, I think today we're the number five all-time um, sports project on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. And uh, we're, you know, I like to compare us to the leading Web3 game in our space is so rare. They do this for soccer. It's a fantasy blockchain soccer game. We're kind of the so rare for horse racing, except we have a much deeper experience and it's a dynasty format game. So you're buying an asset that could live for 25 years 
and be productive for 20 years. Because a company, your horse breeds. Yeah. Once they retire, we sell the offspring and then you get paid a percentage of that sale. You might have a horse and then six years from now starts having, you know, yeah, starts having kids. You get paid and, on. Yeah, this is like, this is unbelievable. I, you have this Discord community of 25,000 people that are involved in this whole other world. And what's really cool is that I'm thinking that you can literally have these horses race in other metaverses and to provide almost entertainment. And other metaverses may pay you to host your races in their worlds like Sandbox to attract more users. Uh, theoretically, we could build uh, extensions of our metaverse in other places. Yeah. It's not a roadmap right now, but there's so many things we can do with this game. Right now, we're, you know, we've launched the alpha. We're building all the functionality out to get to the beta by the middle of the summer um, and really turn this game on full force and start marketing. Everything till now has been organic. We've done very, very little marketing. It's just people finding us and starting to get really engaged. You know, once you hit our Discord, you go to silks.io, you learn about the, the game. This community is incredibly um, engaging. They'll work with you. There are about 20 or 30 businesses that have formed around the game where people have created syndicates ahead of our technology. Like they haven't even waited for us to bring in fractionalization into the game. They've already started building external syndicates in the game, um, which is very cool to see. So, do you do you have a token? Like, how do you guys make money as a as a business? Does the does the business take in? I guess a business would take in profit, but how cool would it be if you like distributed that profit to further token holders? So we we don't have our own native token. We used to have a, a DAO model, uh, and then we realized that it was just too early for the market to embrace it and it complicated the model. And we really want to ad get mainstream adoption um, beyond the Web3 community. So we're on the Ethereum blockchain. Our rewards are paid out in Ethereum. And the way we make our money is every year we sell up to 20,000 horses. We release new land and we sell avatars, which you need to play our game yeah. as the community grows and other assets within the game. Um, those generate revenue for the company. And from that revenue, we pay out a percentage of that back in prize money. We also make money every time an asset trades. And so uh, all the revenue streams that we take in provide us with the capital to be able to distribute um, very beefy uh, rewards. You guys have true on-chain rewards. And a few months ago, we were trying to figure out like how do how do some DeFi aggregators actually do offer you know yield and rewards? You go to some of these places and they you know other than like yield farming and and remember DeFi was crazy a year or two ago and they were offering crazy yields, but now because you're offering rewards and yields and there's actually could be someone who works for like a crypto hedge fund could own a couple of these horses and sitting and working and providing like rewards and yields. This can actually be like a further way to prove out that our economy can be completely on-chain. We can have a completely on-chain economy here. and You're another part of that and you fit modularly into the rest of our economy and it all works together. And because liquidity is so free and de-siloed and information is free and de-siloed, we're going to grow at a much more rapid pace than the rest of the world. You're, you're spot on, Charlie. In our game, you can literally build a farm, a 100-acre farm, 
curate your horses, create a, a farm where people can come in and invest in your horses. They can stable their horses on your farm. You can be incredibly passive or incredibly active. And this can be a business for you. This is a gamified business. It's literally like playing Monopoly for money, but where you own the hotels, you own the real properties, right? The virtual properties, you can trade them for real money. And it's a game of skill, not a game relying on dice. So just kind of think of like a Sim City for money, where you're building, you know. You should world. launch like a Sim City like this, but like it, it's around Florida and it would like follow the business <laughs> transactions somehow. Like you got, there's got to be more like other sports. But how do you do this with basketball and or baseball, but like cooler sports like curling or I don't know, like there's, just, <laughs> there's so much you could do here. This is great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Listen, a lot of my listeners are like, they know nothing about horse racing and they're a little bit nervous. Like, what's the first thing you would tell someone to do if they think this is really cool, but they don't know anything about horses? Um, I would say that uh, more, more than 50% of our community have never been to the racetracks. They found our project. They got excited about it. They got involved and they're now have a new passion. And so if you don't know anything about horse racing, go to silks.io, read our white paper, read uh, gameplay documents. There's a ton of articles written about uh, everything that's going on in the game. And then join the Discord and start engaging with the community. We have webinars all the time. We have live AMAs, um, tons of educational content on the platform. And you don't have to do this alone. You can literally, the beauty of our game is it's collaborative, right? So you join these micro communities by either buying into somebody's horse or syndicating your own horse or building a farm and inviting other people in and you'll, you're gonna make instant friends. So cool. we know that thousands of people are flying all over the world meeting up around our game. So it's a, it's, it's, there's a big social component to it if you want that. I think that's the value proposition of why I got involved in Bitcoin all those years ago is that community of like-minded people. Yeah, it's incredible when you can connect with a community of like-minded people and, you know, share ideas and, and, and entertainment, right? All right, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Charlie. And that's a wrap for today's episode of The Charlie Shrem Show. A big thanks to our incredible guests. Thank you guys so much for sharing your insights on the dynamic world of blockchain gaming. As we continue to explore this new frontier, remember your feedback is so invaluable to us. Please take a moment, leave a review, subscribe. Please share the episode with others who might find it interesting. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We have a really cool one coming out. We have all these cool discussions. We're doing episodes from crypto platforms development, Bitcoin white paper series, all fun. We're getting into very deep topics too. Investigative journalism, going deep and figuring out what exactly happened when and why. Up until next week, I am Charlie Shrem. And as always, thank you for listening. Keep questioning, keep learning, and keep pushing the boundaries, my friends. <laughs>